A listener's note, this series includes descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and grooming. It is not recommended for young audiences. The People vs. Robichaud and Riley is an ongoing case. At the time of this episode's original air date, the defendants had not been convicted of any of the crimes alleged against them. Thank you for calling the law office of Michael. Hey, Justine, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Sorry, I'm a few moments late. That's okay. That's okay. I've got just a limited amount of time, but I'm happy to chat with you. And like I said yesterday, if you want to record, that's fine as well. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. Let's get into it. How are you feeling about what's going to happen on Friday? Well, I mean, there's a little angst going into it, of course. You know, the fact that it's going to be done virtually because of COVID. I mean, we're going to be sitting here on the computer watching uh, the court make a ruling on this, you know, tantamount case, which is of the utmost of importance, obviously, to the victims and to everybody involved. So, yeah, I'm very anxious. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is OC Swingers, Chapter 7, OC Justice. She slept for years on a bench in a park. She made some passes at man in the dark. They began running alone through the night. When she began loving, they put up no fight. Of all of the players in this case, of which there are, let me count, two defendants, three defense attorneys, seven victims, uh, okay, I lost count. Mike Fell is likely the warmest. You might recognize his voice as Gina's empathetic lawyer on Real Housewives of Orange County. In California, they want to know how the victim feels, how this has impacted your life. Mike is a former DA guy, too, and the attorney for Jane Doe 4, the woman whose screams prompted 911 calls all the way back in Chapter 1. When we connected two days before Judge Jones was scheduled to make his big decision, Mike seemed genuinely flummoxed about what might happen next. I mean, my understanding is that it's going to be a pretty straightforward ruling. And I don't know that it's going to be a long hearing because the judge has said, hey, I've already heard all the arguments on the case. You know, I've received briefs from everybody involved in the case. And Friday, you know, at 930 is basically just for a ruling. Like me, Mike had been trying to decipher the clues from the past few days. After ordering that all of the briefs remain sealed, Judge Jones surprised everyone by making filings from both the victims and the prosecution public. It feels like to me that if the judge wanted to unseal these briefs, that perhaps it's going to go to trial. That's kind of how I'm feeling. I hope you're right. (laughs) I hope you're right. I've known Judge Jones for a long, long time. I knew Judge Jones before he was a judge, before he was on the bench as a commissioner. And I have the utmost respect for him. And regardless of his ruling, I have the utmost respect for him. But yeah, I can't read it. I can't read it at all. I mean, believe me, I've definitely spent quite a bit of time thinking about what did this mean and what does this mean? You know, you just don't know. And that's kind of part of the angst, if you will, of being an attorney. Even when you're in court, before a judge rules, a lot of times a judge will say, well, 
my feelings about this are blah, 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 blah. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to rule against me. And then he says, but on the other hand, blah, 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 blah. And then I think, oh, great, he's going to rule for me. And then you never know. And then finally the judge rules, and then you find out. But most judges are very, if you will, poker face about what they're going to do. I've read through a lot of the depositions that were conducted via the civil suit. This is pretty contentious between all sides. You can, like, read the sneers between the lines. Is this your typical experience? No. No, no. None of this is a typical experience. I mean, my background, I spent over 18 years in the district attorney's office. I now represent individuals who are accused of crimes doing criminal defense. And I probably do more victim rights representation under Marcy's law than any other attorney in California. So, no, I have not seen a case in a long time that's this contentious all three ways. So it started out, obviously, where you had the prosecution and the defense, and that was pretty contentious against each other, right? Then I got involved in the case, and it was kind of like the prosecutor and myself were on one side, and the defense was on the other side, right? Then within the last few months, it's now become you've got the prosecutor and the defense on one side, right, with a whole new defense team, and then you've got Mr. Murphy and myself representing five of the victims, totally on the other side. So it's very unusual, extremely unusual. So how is your client doing? She's also extremely anxious, you know, not having legal training. She's kind of holding her breath until Friday. I mean, she and I have had a lot of communication with each other. And, you know, it's almost like, Justine, there's going to be a pre-June 5th and a post-June 5th, right? As far as how people are thinking, how people are preparing, how people are emotionally sitting, right? So right now we're at pre-June 5th, waiting to see, will the case go forward? Will the case end? What's going to happen? And so you're kind of on pins and needles. And then after June 5th, is there going to be total elation? Is there going to be total grief? Is there going to be total stress? And you can kind of say that on everybody's side. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can't tell if I think June 5th is the end, the beginning. Yes, yes, that's a great way to put it. So is June 5th a continuance of what started a year and a half ago? Or is June 5th the end of what happened for many of these women many, many years ago? Yeah, I mean, I hope it's not the latter. That would feel hugely disappointing. And of course, obviously, as do I, as do I. Our position is this. And being a former sexual assault prosecutor for the Orange County District Attorney's Office, okay, sexual assault cases are very, very difficult to prove. Most of the time, you don't have other witnesses. It's not like somebody that's coming in and going into a bank holding a gun and you've got 50 witnesses that see these people, right? And you've got maybe people seeing the getaway car and the license plate and a description of maybe height and weight or if they wore a mask and, and the DNA from the mask. Do you know what I mean? Like in those type of cases, there's a lot of different evidence. When you're talking about sex cases, whether it be child molest cases, whether it be rape cases, whether it be spousal rape cases, whatever the case may be, okay? Usually there's two witnesses, the perpetrator and the victim. And many times, and they're very, very difficult to prove. And in every single rape case, okay, every single sexual assault case, there are two defenses and only two defenses. One is, I didn't do it, wasn't me, right? You got the wrong guy. And the second defense is it was consensual. That's it. There's only two defenses. 
Okay. So in this case, since they've been identified, since all the facts that are known, the only defense they have is the consent defense. And that's, of course, what they're going with. And our position on behalf of the victims is if you feel that this was consensual, then guess what? Let the victims tell their story. Sometimes, wading through this case and the actual physical heft of its countless court filings has been overwhelming. I started working on this podcast at a pivotal moment in the case's history, right when Spitzer tried to have the charges dismissed in February 2020, right when COVID hit. Twice in the three-month period, I spent hunkering down with my husband, our two small children, his parents, and his 94-year-old grandma in rural Maryland during that original period of confusion and universal paranoia last spring. I went to FedEx to print hundreds then thousands of pages of court documents from this case. I ordered large butterfly clips on Amazon and wiped down their boxes with disinfectant. After my kids went to bed, I googled obscure legal terms and harassed my niece, Rachel, who is a lawyer, but definitely not a criminal defense attorney. And then I watched Tiger King. This case and all of its moving parts became not an obsession exactly, but a litmus test for my ability to make sense of things. More than one friend suggested I make a Carrie Matheson crazy wall to keep everything straight. I guess you're listening to it. Honestly, you really haven't lived until you've been a fly on the wall in a digital courtroom during COVID. Uh, we are demanding... I don't know if anyone can hear, but mine completely froze. Your Honor, can you hear me? I can hear you. On June 5th, 2020, Judge Jones made his ruling. He would not be dismissing the charges against Grant and Sarissa. He filed a 25-page brief in which he outlined the many ways he felt that the DA's request was sketchy. A motion by the people to dismiss a 17-count rape-slash-kidnapping case involving seven alleged victims and carrying a life penalty prior to any evidence being presented is not common, he wrote. It is even more suspect when made by an incoming district attorney in the aftermath of an extremely contentious election. Jones presented the scope of the charges against Grant and Sarissa alongside his own assertions on why it matters that Robichaux was a licensed doctor. There are few, if any, professions held in higher esteem than that of a physician, he wrote. People put their lives in the hands of their physicians. Logic and common sense would indicate that the alleged victims in this case put their trust and confidence in Robichaux, given his social stature. This trust makes the potential victim even more vulnerable. He concluded, any objective analysis of this case leads to the conclusion that these charges should be put before a jury. A backroom dismissal by prosecutors without the alleged victims ever having the opportunity to be heard is contrary to the core values of our legal process and the interests of the public. In the following weeks, the cast of characters reconvened over WebEx, the court's version of Zoom, to review a myriad of new issues. Since Judge Jones's ruling, the defense tried and failed to get him ousted from the case by saying he'd been partial to Matt Murphy. When that request was denied, the defense made the court aware of a sizzle reel, miraculously unearthed by Todd Spitzer's office. In a two-minute pitch deck for a show called Orange County Justice, Tony Rakakis, his chief of staff, Susan Schroeder, and Matt Murphy himself are positioned as rights-crusading reality stars. Matt Murphy is a very talented trial attorney. Good-looking, charming, all the girls love. Through your verdict, I'm asking you, you set this right. 
if there wasn't evidence before, the defense offered, how do you watch something like this and not think everyone involved in the filing of this case is in cahoots? The logic is thin, but it did make me wonder, is everyone in Newport Beach eyeing a side career in reality television? The defense also began lobbying to get a preliminary hearing on the calendar, even though they'd long ago waived their right to a speedy trial. All of the contradictory motions created a bottleneck, which was perhaps their purpose. On June 19th, an interim judge announced that the future of the case wouldn't be decided until Friday, August 7th, 2020. Both Grant and Sarissa were ordered to be in court that day, regardless of COVID-19 precautions. All right. First of all, if uh, anyone has any difficulty hearing me, please let me know. These masks obviously make it somewhat problematic in regards to communicating. I'm also going to ask on behalf of Corey Porter that everybody speak loudly and slowly. Corey Porter's generally... Uh, look at people's uh, faces to try and read lips to assist in their understanding and comprehension. So please keep that in mind. I have read and reviewed the documents that have been submitted by the defense and people. Uh, It is my understanding, Mr. Zimmer, Ms. Stokey, that the people are taking the position that they have an irreconcilable conflict and that you are requesting that the court refer this case to the Attorney General's office for further prosecution. That's correct, Your Honor. May be heard on that? Yes. Thank you. Um, Your Honor, the OCDA agrees that uh, it has an irreconcilable conflict. Um, since the court has denied its motion to dismiss, the OCDA does remain steadfast in its belief that the evidence is insufficient to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the people do believe there's a whole bunch of legal jargon being tossed around, but the DA's office is basically saying that while their position remains that there is insufficient evidence in the case, they're just the absolute wrong people to prosecute this thing. Full stop. They cite some California penal codes that further corroborate their position. Um, and the people do concede that under Penal Code 1424 that the Orange County District Attorney is disqualified uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, 1424 standard for disqualification is that a conflict of interest exists that would render it unlikely that the defendant would receive a fair trial. But more or less, they're begging to get fired. We believe that based on our current position that uh, the defendant would not receive a fair trial if we were were to remain on the case uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, forcing the OCDA to proceed and prosecute a case when uh, we believe that we cannot ethically do so. And we believe um, and have repeatedly stated that we cannot prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt uh, is in itself unfair to the defense uh, to have a prosecution forced to proceed where we have gone on record saying that we don't believe uh, this is a viable case. And number two, um, the Orange County District Attorney's position that this case cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt is in fact a position favorable to the defense. And um, that by definition is not fair. So uh, we cannot give them a fair trial. The defense tries once again to insist that the case should have never been filed in the first place and to position itself in agreement with the current DA and his officers and in direct opposition of the previous DA and the alleged victims. I don't think it matters, and I can certainly get into it, 
I don't think it matters whether the district attorney acquiesces or not. An unlawful act is not made lawful by the DA's failure to object or choice not to object. So I am unaware of any preclusion that would prevent a defendant from objecting to a court's action in any type of criminal proceeding where the defendant's constitutional rights and liberty are at stake. Cohen starts pulling out all these deep cut legal references and giving me all kinds of unhinged goodwill hunting vibes. Let me ask, where does the court get the power or authority under 128 to disqualify a district attorney, if not under Greer? Under 128 subs. Your Honor, 128 is this amorphous section that basically says the court can do whatever it wants. We could go on and on with this forever, and we're not going to do it. I'm going to make findings. If you don't like them, you can take whatever appellate remedy you want to take. The long and the short of it is that I have serious questions about the district attorney's ability to prosecute this case at this point. I think that they are hopelessly conflicted. They have indicated that they will not proceed on this case, do not want to proceed on this case, and cannot proceed on this case. Accordingly, I am going to order that they be disqualified and recused from further representation of the people of the state of California on this case. And pursuant to that disqualification, I am going to order that the case be referred to the attorney general's office for prosecution. I am going to order that the district attorney's office provide all discovery materials to the attorney general and the entire case file so that they can be prepared to prosecute this case in an expeditious fashion. It's obviously an extremely old case, and it needs to proceed. Cohen interjects once more. The court has made no findings or indication regarding any malfeasance by Mr. Rokakis's office, which was the impetus for the entire domino effect that fell. The court has never in this case, and I want to be clear, Mr. Rokakis stated to a national audience there were a thousand victims of rape on video. He repeated that statement under oath in his deposition, which I know the court has read. No, I have not. Oh, well, the court cited to the deposition. No, I didn't. I said I made reference to Mr. Spitzer's comment in one of his press releases. Let me finish. It states in the February 4th press release that Mr. Rokakis used the case to garner media attention. That's not exactly what he said. He said that he thought he would get media attention. I looked back at the press release. It says, after Rokakis admitted in a sworn deposition that he had used the case to garner media attention to help his re-election campaign, Spitzer ordered a complete re-evaluation of the case. But what Rokakis actually said was, I certainly expected it to get a lot of publicity, yes. The correct wording ran in the LA Times, CBS LA, OC Weekly, and elsewhere. Your Honor, if the court hasn't read Mr. Rokakis's deposition... It's not part of the record. I'm not going to read something that's not part of the record. Then how does the court know what he said? 
I didn't read the transcript. Your Honor, you're maligning Mr. Spitzer's reference to Rakakis's deposition, saying that's not what Rakakis said. You've told us you haven't read his deposition. I have not. I not only read it, I took it. I know exactly what was said, and I would invite this court, if you're going to start throwing out issues of malfeasance, that the court should take a look at the Rakakis deposition to begin with. I don't know how much you had going on back in August of last year, but for me, this hearing was pretty much the social event of my life. While I watched on my laptop, I feverishly took notes and texted with Matt Murphy, the lawyer for Jane Doe's 1, 6, 7, and 8, who was in court. Masked and socially distanced in the juror's box, but in court. Me. This is hard to watch. Matt. My question is, if there was a hippie train robber in the Old West, how jealous would he be of Philip's funky fresh face covering? I swear. The fratty digs between the lawyers in this case never stop. You cannot get three sentences into a brief without someone calling someone else an absolute jagoff. Once the hearing was over, I called Mike Fell for a play-by-play. That was insane, watching that from home. I was, like, so uncomfortable. that I've never seen anything like that. Well, this is going to be one of the most interesting cases from every legal perspective, every factual perspective, probably that I've ever been involved in in my 30-plus years. I think Judge Jones is, and you can hear him making his ruling, and I think that, you know, he was more than prepared. I mean, he's just a wonderful judge, and I thought that he really came back with some extremely strong arguments to counter the defensive, ridiculous arguments that might have been. How is your client feeling? Like, what is, does this feel like the first development in a while that feels like maybe this is actually going to end up in justice? Yeah, and you know what, Justine, I'm so glad you asked me that question because with all the legal quagmires that are going on, sometimes we lose sight of who the actual victims are. I just got off the phone with her right now and she was so happy. First of all, what happened to her? and how she was victimized was so devastating, okay? And and then years later, finding that somebody really cared and the case was gonna get prosecuted, all of a sudden it just restores her faith in humanity, it restores her faith in the justice system. What happened between all the people in that room? What was the vibe like? Well, I know at least for myself and Mr. Murphy, who represent most of the victims in the case, we got up and we left. Yeah. I mean, that, that. Mr. Cohen was, um, you know, he was drowning, trying to hang on to any stick that he could. Yeah. The, is, the, the sticks that he was trying to hang on to, uh, you know, weren't even realistic sticks. There was nothing there. This is such a strange, yeah. surreal thing that now I'm party to as well. No, he looked like Jesse James up there. I mean, it was about an hour of proceedings. Yeah. Um, just what, how were you feeling? Um, well, I had a myriad of emotions. Number one, I was very pleased because I saw where this was going. I saw the the ultimate ruling being made by Judge Jones. I thought he was on point, Um, and and I was very pleased for my client in regards to that. I'm hoping that we can focus more on the case now than on the, you know, what people have alleged, the political turmoil. And I just want to add, if I may, Justine, you know, my client, I, I think what happened today did really help my client and her restoration of her faith in the criminal system. Because remember, this is somebody that was attacked, case went away for two years, then the case was prosecuted, 
was being prosecuted for about a year. Then there was a decision to dismiss the case. Then there was arguments as to whether the case should be dismissed or not. Then she was elated by the fact that the judge decided that the case was not being dismissed. Then she was taken down on that roller coaster again with the defense trying to say that the judge was well, should be recused and was acting improperly. Then her faith was restored again when an L.A. judge said that no defense is wrong. And again, her faith was restored again by the rulings today. So it's been quite the unpleasant journey for her. But I think today was really a highlight. And in talking to her on the phone, she was so happy. Um, and it was so nice to hear her that way. I was excited for the women in this case. To me, this felt like a step in the right direction. But with this case, nothing is ever as it seems. I decided to check back in with my man on the ground in the OC. Here's Sean Emery. I think you could tell kind of the tension that's been kind of rising, especially from the defense side, in that they've been, oddly enough, a little bit on the sidelines for the last few months because it's really been the DA's office pushing to get the case dismissed and then the versus the victim's attorneys who are kind of pushing to get the DA's office off the case. And you know, obviously the defense has been on the prosecutor's side in that battle, but there's been a lot of hearings where they've had very little to say, whereas on Friday it was, I mean, it was 90% Cohen and going pretty hard at the judge. And I think the ruling itself, I don't think at this point was a surprise. I mean, ever since the judge refused to dismiss the case and, and at that point raised his concerns, it's been pretty clear that this is kind of where things were headed. I was surprised to see Cohen go that hard after a sitting judge. That's as much pushback as, as I've ever seen, quite frankly, in, in any court proceeding to a judge. Sean and I parsed the points and the counterpoints as if we'd both been watching the same sports game. The interactions and spectacles, the digs and the terse exchanges and the roastable outfits aren't just courtroom theatrics. These choices actually make a difference. They can influence or intimidate, distract or dissuade. They're on the record. The legal theory is that a judge is supposed to set aside his feelings about it, but at the same time, you know, judges make a million rulings leading up to trials. And from a human standpoint, I don't know if we ever could really truly know if that enters into it. You know, when you have some of these, you know, rulings that may at a certain point be a close call, in a lot of cases, I mean, this obviously, this case is a far away from trial if it ever gets there. But quite frankly, in a lot of cases, the really big fights are the pre-trial fights. It's what evidence is going to get in. It's what are they going to be able to introduce. Uh, some of these cases are won and lost based on what evidence can even get into trial before the trial even starts. I then asked Sean something that has been bugging me. Do you think this case is getting the attention it deserves? I kind of feel like it hasn't at this point, as far as the recent decision, which is odd to me. And I don't say this as a way as judging them, but I mean, I don't know if the, even the LA Times has written about the DA's office being taken off the case. I, unless they did an update over the weekend that I didn't see, which kind of shocks me. And some of the other national outlets that have kind of dipped in over the last few years when there's been controversies surrounding the DA's office haven't really picked it up. The thing I'm not sure of is if that's just because this has not popped on their radar yet or if it's been just how things have changed, meaning with the pandemic, with justice issues overall. Even locally, I think back in the day until a couple of years ago, you had the OC Weekly, which they would 
cover it a different way. They would be going hard. And I think that some of the other national outlets would kind of look to them sometimes to pick some of that stuff up. And maybe them not being around anymore has done it. And you know, the LA Times, I think, has kind of moved out of OC a little bit in general. So maybe that's played into it. I am surprised it has not gotten more traction just because, I mean, even if it was something I was expected, a DA's office being taken off a prosecution, particularly one that's this big and has gotten this much attention initially, that's a big deal. It's very rare. I mean, this day and age, you'd think with, you know, obviously kind of the larger Me Too movement, and maybe it's a sad testament to the fact that, you know, the victims, to some extent, I mean, I know, obviously, Matt Murphy and obviously Mike Feller are doing their best to, you know, kind of keep them centered. But, I mean, they've kind of been, and the judge mentioned that, of course, but it, it seems like on some level, they have not been the focus at all of this recently. It's been all what Rokakis is accused of doing, what Spitzer's accused of doing, what investigators are accused of doing or not doing, you know, and the simple fact that there are all these women who in any other situation would seem to be taking a key role here on some level kind of pushed to the side, you know, maybe not intentionally by anybody, but that seems to be the impact of this. Next time on OC Swingers. He was not tortured. He pranced around or whatever all the time. He just did whatever he wanted to do all the time. They just played all the time. He would seem like the happy, like a little leprechaun. That's what he seemed like. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is as things go on and on and on, people get a little bit, I don't want to say less interested, but it, things cool down. OC Swingers is an Audio Chuck original, executive produced by Ashley Flowers, and created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. It was produced by Josh McLaughlin, editing and sound designed by David Flowers, with additional research and fact-checking by Barbara Keene. Special thanks to Michael Carey, Anne Dibel, and Anna Hendrick of Quest Investigates, and Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. So Chuck, do you approve? <laughs>